So let's just take a moment and pray. Father, I thank you for our, uh, our opportunity just to come and gather and, and be part of our service this morning. I thank you that we can come and worship, that you have allowed us just to know something about yourself. You are amazing. You are magnificent. Help us just to worship you, not only in our words and our songs, but in our lives. And as we look at your word this morning, I just pray that you'll give us receptive hearts and ears, and may it just be your spirit that speaks this morning. Uh, ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed, but being a Christian can be quite a lot of work. Um, you need to know your Bible quite well. You need to have a prayer life with God. Uh, you need to work on your own personal holiness. Uh, you need to speak about God to other people. Uh, you need to get to the meetings on time. Not one of my strong points. Um, you need to give some of your money. Uh, you have to do some of the cleaning. Uh, so, the, so the list goes on. Now, that might sound all a bit negative. It's worth every sacrifice. Being part of God's family, being part of a church, is worth it all. And whether it's in this life or certainly in the next, God will make every sacrifice and every struggle that we have absolutely worthwhile. But as if that growing list isn't bad enough, you also have to deal with people. And I think sometimes that can be the hardest thing of all. I don't know if you've noticed this, but some people are really weird. <laughs> some are even a little bit rude at times. Others seem to have positions which are above me and seem to have more respect than I do. I understand that as it happens. <clears throat> um, and all of them, universally, at one point or another, in discussion with me, have proven a universability to be wrong. I'm not sure what the common factor is. But dealing with people is just life. And it's life in the church, and it's just life beyond that. And it could be that God just would leave us, just to, just to muddle through it and, and just get on with things. But God doesn't leave it to our own common sense, thank goodness, or, or best judgment. He gives us thoughts regularly throughout Scripture about how we can get on with other people. Our passage today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is just part of that. And in our letter, Paul is addressing this church to give advice on two particular matters. Firstly, how do you deal with the people who lead you? And how do you deal with each other? So, if you have a Bible, uh, it will be on the screen anyway. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and looking at verses 12 to 15, and it says this. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Well, that is some pretty sound advice right there. The idea of leadership in the church has been a very divisive matter over the generations. In many places, even today, some churches have a very tiered situation and system. There are the people who lead, they teach, they make all the decisions, and everyone else just makes tea, coffee, hands out biscuits, and gives them money. In other churches, there's it's been such an issue that they've done away with all ideas of leadership. Everyone's the same. Democracy rules, bordering on communism. Everybody is in exactly the same position. 
Now, in reality, whilst this might work and be pleasant for some people, this is not, neither of these options is a biblical model for how a church should work and how leadership should work. And there are many passages in Scripture which speak plainly about the needs for and the requirements of leaders in a church. In Acts chapter 14, for example, we read, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. In Titus 1, we read this. Paul writes and says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. It's very clear, according to Scripture, that there must be leaders, elders, oversight, um, bishops. A lot of these words all really meaning the same idea, this idea of eldership. And it's important that we have that in the church. Now, the requirements of the church leaders, they're, again, in various parts of Scripture. And as we just look at two of the lists, just feel a little bit sorry for the elders, maybe. It's a high set of standards. So in Titus 1, again, it says this, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy message as he has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. That's quite a list. To be an elder, a leader, it's quite a set of criteria, quite a lot of boxes to tick. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, there's another similar, slightly different list. It says this, here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer or an elder desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become deceited and fall into the same judgment as the devil, pride. He must also be good, have good reputation with outsiders, so that he does not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Boy, what a set of lists to be an elder. I wonder if you ever wondered how you become an elder or how you take on that position of leadership. I wonder if you ever thought, are these passages, is that, what the, is that the panel question? Is that, is that how the interview works? You know, when you sit down and, and you get interviewed for the possession, or, I mean, that's not what happens. But have you ever thought, like, do they look at these types of lists and try and come up with questions to quiz you? Are you going to be that kind of person? Is it going to be, if we were to give you this job, would you now be faithful to your wife? Would you suddenly become passionate about teaching and about scripture? No, of course not. Someone who is going to be an elder is already doing these things. They're already marked by these criteria. They're already following this list. They've already shown these attributes. They're already passionate about scripture. They're already using scripture to educate and to teach other people. They're already gentle. They're already hospitable. 
and as we go through the list, they're already there. An elder in a church will be obvious because of their works, because of their character, because of who they are, not because they can give the right answers in a question. But if you think that this list is only for the elders, then I think that's a bit too narrowing. Shouldn't we all aspire to hit those criteria? To be those people, hospitable, lovers of good, sound doctrine and teaching, gentle. Wouldn't it be great if that was, in fact, all of us? And in this passage, we see the standards, the high standards that God expects from the elders, but also the position of privilege and responsibility that they are. They're not positions to be taken lightly, but they are requiring, as well, an appropriate amount of respect from the wider church body. But as with all situations where we might find ourselves with leaders, and therefore by default, people who must be led, there is always the risk of judgmentalism, disregard, disrespect, and all of these things would lead to disunity in the church. And this is the reason why Paul writes to this church regarding how they deal with their own leaders. You can see, as we look at our passage, Paul has such a care for the believers in this church. He's been such a vital part of the foundation and the growth of this church. He was there when it was uh, first put together. He was one of those evangelists. He has such a care for them. And he would hate to see disunity being produced and growing inside this church. And for many churches down through the generations, many groups of Bible-believing believers, of people who love Christ, the easiest way for the devil to target them has been to create disunity in the church. And in particular, to create disunity and tension between people and the, the leaders of the church. And so in our passage, Paul is asking, no, he's pleading with them to refrain from this. And his starting off point is to remind them that they are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. As each one of them has been individually saved by their faith in the finished work of Calvary's cross, having placed individually their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and having entered because of that into a, a relationship with their heavenly Father, they have also entered into a relationship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is in that family setting, that understanding and appreciation that these elders are also their brothers and sisters in Christ, in that context in that situation Paul pleads and encourages them to work well together not to take for granted that relationship not to undermine the elders now I personally feel very blessed to be part of a church where I don't feel tension I don't feel and I don't hear about discord and people arguing with elders and that might be because I'm totally oblivious to things because generally I am but I feel as if in our church, there's a real passion to work well together. To not get in each other's way. To not get in the way of the Spirit. To not get in the way of God's glory, which ultimately is what God gets when we work together. And may that continue. And may we thrive as a church group who are united together and who are passionate. It doesn't mean that we're always going to see eye to eye with our elders on every decision. It doesn't mean that. But we respect them. And Paul addresses the church. And regarding their attitude towards elders, he's keen to incite respect 
an acknowledgement of their position on three stands. First of all, elders work hard amongst the church. Secondly, they care for the church. And thirdly, there are times where they need to admonish those in the church. So firstly, we respect those who lead because they work hard. In this role, it's a God-given authority. But as with all areas of responsibility throughout life, leadership, first of all, requires service. A leader is firstly a servant of the people. And for this reason, Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, anyone who wants to be first must first be the very last and the servant of all. And leadership positions must first of all be places of service, where they are not above but actually below the people, supporting and helping. Isn't it why the leader of our country is in fact called the prime minister, the first servant? Because all leadership positions, first of all, and must be based on servant-heartedness. And that's true for elders. Leading a church cannot be easy. As I look around, and as you think about different people in the church, Just think about how many different people you have to relate to. Just think about how many different possible situations might occur and have to be dealt with. How do you balance church commitments and how time-consuming that is with your own personal and family commitments? How do you decide what is the correct path for the church to take in the future? And, and, you know, the list is never-ending, really. I'm not being paid by the elders to say all this stuff, by the way. But it's no easy job. And it's not one to take lightly. And the word that Paul uses in our passage is to toil, to struggle, to sweat over this job. It's hard work. And I'm sure as the discipling takes place, and the disciplining takes place, and the preparation of sermons takes place, and the planning meetings take place, as we think about extensions and all manner of different things, I have no doubt that there is a lot of emotional and mental and physical sweating and toil that goes into this job. And it's not for self-glory or for possession or for self-respect. It's for a love of people and a devotion to the Lord himself. And for those who aspire to this kind of possession in a church, again, it's not something we take lightly, but there's a special reward in heaven for those who have led and are, are leading the church in a godly way. But that work is amongst us. It's hard work, but it's amongst the people. The elders are not above the people. They're not separated. They don't work from the back office and etc. etc. They're in amongst the people. But it's hard. And because it's hard work, Paul calls this church to respect the elders. But they have to be caring as well. That was the second point. A church body where the leaders are not moved by the physical and spiritual progress and health of the people is a church which quickly is going to lose harmony. And referring back to our passage in Timothy 3, Paul brings out the the idea of pastoral and parental care over the church. If anyone, it said, does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And so just as Christ, the great shepherd, is one who loves and cares and guards for his own sheep, so the church elders are called to do the same. And I dread to think of the different situations which are encountered. The painful stories 
which are passed on, the heartbreak which is shared as the oversight of, of a church just works pastorally and parentally with people. How much heartbreak must be felt in that job? But there is a challenge in this as well for the rest of us. Those who are not elders of the church to look out for our elders and to care for them in just the same way and to support them whenever and wherever we possibly can. And as a church body, which is brothers and sisters in Christ, we can all share the burden of caring and looking out for each other. That's exactly what we should be. So may we as a church, a Regent Chapel, be filled with that kind of passion for each other and that careful heart, that loving heart. But from an elder's perspective, there's one other particular aspect which Paul brings out. And that is that the elders at points will need to admonish. And the idea of, of admonishing is the idea of challenging poor behavior and attitudes with the aim to disciplining and to bringing that walk back onto a correct path. And so a church leader has to be willing and able to challenge poor behavior. Behavior which might be damaging to self, damaging to other people, damaging to the reputation of the church, or damaging to the name of the risen Lord. And I wonder if that's maybe just the hardest job of all for an elder. Certainly hard when you're on the receiving end of it. Certainly hard to take that, to have to be spoken to for whatever reason, and, and we all know that there are many of different reasons why we might have to require correction. And it's tough. And it maybe creates some awkwardness. But actually, as people in the church, we need to be big enough to be able to take that kind of correction, knowing that our church leaders are doing it through love and a passion to see us walk the right path. And as they sensitively speak with us, we accept that it's a responsibility which is given by God to them. And we respect them even more because of that. So we accept that our elders are here to guard, are here to guide. And God has called them into that position and gifted them to be that, in that position. And so in light of these challenges, we don't place our, our, our elders on pedestals. We don't view them jealously. We don't think about them with disdain or anything like that, but we hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. And that is a phrase which literally translates, think about them in the best way that you possibly can. And in doing so, we live in peace with one another. There is unity in the church and we work together and there is that the absence of awkwardness. Now, this has hardly touched the surface in terms of the call and the responsibilities of the church leaders. And, and don't we all pray? And we've had the great pleasure of being able to think specifically about Sam this morning. But we, have, we are blessed here with so many young people. And don't we as a church long that those young people will grow up to be great men and women for God, moving in their own generations, changing the world, in a passionate way, in a way which glorifies God, in a way in which God's name is magnified and made high and souls are won for him. And the way that we treat our elders and the example that we give them 
might encourage our young people to be elderly, to, to be passionate for that list, for, to, to fulfill those criteria, or we might just put them off when we don't treat them in the right way. So again, that doesn't mean that we agree with every single decision. It doesn't mean that we don't engage in debates and discussions with them, and we don't have our own opinions, but regardless, we respect them, and we hold them in high esteem, and we think about them as well as we possibly can. But what of the way that we deal with each other? Paul goes on, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that no one pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Notice that at the beginning of this, it's brothers and sisters. It's the same phrase that was used at the beginning of verse 12, because it's the same group of people who are being referred to. This actually is not addressed to the elders. This is addressed to the people of the church. And so we don't see, well, there is the job for the elders to do, and then we just like deal with ourselves, and, and we just turn up, and, and etc. There's actually a great level of responsibility for each and every person who is in the church. And there are three particular instructions that Paul gives to this church. Warn, encourage, and help. In the first one, Paul seems to be specifically identifying those who are idle and disruptive. And the general opinion is that in this church, there were people who just refused to pay their own way. They didn't want to work. They didn't want to get jobs. They were unwilling to put in some hard graft. They wanted to be taken care of. They wanted to be fed and maintained by other people. And it was causing grief. It was causing discomfort. And actually, what energy they did have, they were using in very unproductive ways. This seems to be an instruction which was blatantly ignored. Because in the second letter to Thessalonians, Paul has to write again. And he says this, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive. There's that phrase again. And does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you, are, you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this, not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this role, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some, some people among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busy buddies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never of tiring, never tire of doing what is good. Notice that in their idleness, what energy they do have, they're using for mischief. What is it that my mum says about idle hands? Something about the devil's work. As a church body, as we notice behaviour, which we are, we are, behaviour like this, we are asked to challenge it in a way that is sensitive, encouraging, not likely to cause offence, but strongly. There is a need for the church to be seen to be hard workers. We should be hard workers. Benefiting our country, benefiting our economy, not relying on others, but like the apostles, to do what they can to not be a burden. Now, of course, there are people who are retired, injured, 
unable to work for a variety of different reasons, and we have a welfare state, and we have a church family who is able to provide, and that is right. But where we are able to work, we should work. And in this particular church, there was a problem. And Paul addresses it. <clears throat> but he doesn't directly speak to the elders. He says that the people of the church should be looking out for this, should intervene, and responsibly and sensitively should appeal to those people to change their path, to correct their actions, and to sort themselves out. If we have no effect when we do this, then the right thing in that situation is to speak with an elder. And there is a, a scriptural discipline route that would be taken, which is set out in the Bible. But we can't wash our hands of situations like this. We actually all have a responsibility to stand up to problems that we see and to try and intervene, but to do it in a way which is loving and encouraging. Now, beyond just the, the, the encouragement to, to warn people, we are also asked to encourage. And in particular, Paul says, encourage those who are disheartened. And there's a variety of reasons for feeling, people feeling disheartened. Two, in particular, that have come through in this book would be that people have lost loved ones. People who have fallen asleep and they didn't know what the situation around about that was. And, and those people, Paul knew, would feel disheartened and discouraged. But also, this was a church who had suffered a severe amount of persecution. They had been through the ringer. And because of that, people would feel disheartened and discouraged. And Paul says to the church body, those people, we need to encourage them. We need to be there beside them. It's not a hard word they need. It's a compassionate ear. It's an arm around about them. It's somebody to be there beside them. And maybe they just need to be reminded about what God has done for them and what God is doing for them, what God is preparing for them. And in light of an eternity in heaven, that might just be a reminder to keep on striving, to struggle on, to fight the good fight, to keep soldiering on for Christ. If you're here and actually you feel a bit under strain, a bit broken by the world, you're feeling disheartened and discouraged may I please encourage you not to struggle with that yourself, but to speak to someone. We are a church family who should be moved with care and compassion and love for each other. And so find somebody, if that's you, find somebody that you can open up with and be comfortable with and speak to them and let them be the hands of Christ to you and the words of Christ. And may they just help you and don't struggle in silence as a church body we can in fact encourage and we should help the weak we don't really know who Paul was specifically referring to with this instruction help the weak it could have been those who were physically hurt who were physically weakened it could have been those who were spiritually young and hadn't got the years of experience in the faith it could have been those who had a predisposition to certain sin or to wandering away from the path or to wandering away from Christ it might be those who were slaves and they felt as if they had no political standing, no social standing, and they felt weak in society. Regardless, they were vulnerable. They were needy. And Paul says to the church body, they require the help of those who are stronger. And there's that encouragement to us. Now, because 
This isn't for a specific group. We need to be aware of the people around about us. It's very easy when life is hard and we, when we have our own problems to become very kind of self-interested and, and just to look at our own issues. But actually, we need to be aware of people around about us. We need to have our eyes opened to the struggles and the hardships of people around about us so that we can, in fact, help those who are weak. And more than that, we need to be patient with everyone. There's a challenge. We are going to rub each other up the wrong way. If I haven't rubbed you up the wrong way yet, give it time. We are going to be a little bit annoying, a little bit slow, a bit frustrating. We are going to be a nuisance to other people. I'm going to be that person. I know that. I've accepted it. Um, but actually, we need to be patient with each other. Now, it doesn't mean that we are tolerant of everything, no matter how long it goes on. As we've said, sometimes we need to intervene. We need to have words with people. But I wonder how many squabbles, how many things that escalated throughout the generations of, of church life could have been avoided if we were actually just patient with each other. If we accepted, you know what? You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We all get things wrong. And I just need to be patient with you. And so we come to our last verse. And what a great practical verse to come to. Please remember the context of this church is that they have had such persecution. They have been under fire. Going back to chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says this, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus, you suffered from your, uh, from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They had suffered. They had been persecuted. It had been hard. And people were thinking about ways to get revenge and to get their own back. And this is just the natural heart bearing its own fruit. It's very normal. It's very logical for us, when somebody hurts us, to be thinking how we're going to get back at them. But Paul writes them and says, do not reply wrong for wrong. What kind of message does it actually send to somebody? That person who maybe is your brother and sister in Christ, or maybe even you would love them to turn to Christ and to become a Christian and find the Lord Jesus Christ themselves. What message does it send if we're actually motivated by trying to get our own back on them? Was this, was this the nature of the Lord? The one who taught to turn the other cheek? But more than just teaching to turn the other cheek, from the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The old way of things had been an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But today, in this day of grace, God says, we're not here to repay that wrong. Because let's be honest, if that's the way God worked, if God repaid wrong for wrong, then today each one of us would be in hell suffering for our sins. But that's not the way God works because he's gracious and loving. And so we must be those people ourselves. And so Paul calls these believers to be people who forgive, not looking for retaliation, for revenge, who believe that revenge is a dish best not served at all, who have read and follow the wisdom of Solomon, who in Proverbs 20 says this, do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. 
rather wait for the Lord and he'll avenge you. And whether or not that's what we actually pray for. Paul's words, uh, uh, Solomon's words were, I will not pay you back this wrong. And as we grow as a church together, as friends together, as a family together, as brothers and sisters together, as married couples together, Sarah, (laughs) as partners together, we are going to wrong each other. Just ask Sarah at 11. And oh, that I would be somebody who was quick to forgive. For me, oh, that I would be better at this. Not holding on to grudges. Not looking for ways to get the upper hand. And really, actually, it's a prerequisite for our own forgiveness. What is it that the Lord says when he taught us how to pray? Forgive us our sins, even as we forgive those who sin against us. If we cannot forgive people who have done us wrong, then really we have to question whether or not we've understood our own forgiveness at all. Because God has forgiven us so much more. And so we are asked, we are called, we are commanded to be forgiving people. We don't forget necessarily. That might be an unwise thing to do. We might have to be cautious around people for specific reasons. But we can forgive. It's the Christ-like thing to do. And it's the thing that produces a united church working for God's glory. And so instead, we try to do what is good for each other. And this idea of trying in the, in the NIV translation in particular doesn't really carry the right level of clout. It kind of sounds like, oh, give it your best. Have a go. You know, try and do what is good for each people. No, do what is good for other people. Go the extra mile. Make the effort. Do what is best. And whilst our faith does not rest on the works that we do, and it's not in that grand scale of having more rights than wrongs, that's not how our faith works. But scripture is clear that those who are in that relationship with God, those who have been forgiven, those who who understand and have had some of that undeserved grace from God, will pay that forward, will do good to other people, James, in his book, is very clear. He says faith without works is dead. And it's often been said regarding the importance of works in our faith that faith alone saves. But saving faith is never alone. And so hard as it is at times, we are moved, we are called to do good works. Mowing a lawn for someone, going out of your way to give them a lift, Whatever it happens to be, we are asked to do good works. And in that, we might just encourage somebody who's struggling in their faith. Or we may be a shining light for Jesus and attract somebody to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that works, whilst they don't produce salvation, might be the thing that causes somebody to say, what have they got that I've not got? And so, as a church, as we are marked by this kind of respect, compassion, and care both to those who lead us and to those who are part of our church family, we will be brothers and sisters to each other. We will be a church who grows united together, which is bound by love, which glorifies God, and attracts those who still need the Lord. And so may we all toil, strive, sweat to be those types of people and that kind of church. Let's just pray. 
Father, I thank you for your words. I thank you for the challenge and the encouragement that's in it. Help us to be brothers and sisters together. Help us to respect our elders. Help our elders to do their job in a godly way. Help us to be good to each other, to be forgiving. And in all ways that we can, help us just to be emblems and and to represent Jesus Christ. May he be our example. We pray that you will bless us in Christ's name.